0: Amen. Thank you, Pastor Chad. And thank you, Sister Brittany and Sister Amy. Wow. I mean, all, all the singing, all the music this morning has just been glorious. And, and I just thank God for our Pastor Chad. He, I, I guarantee, he puts together our worship guides. And I, I promise you, there's probably not another church in the area, I would even say across the country, That has a more deliberately thought through and prayed over worship service than Cornerstone Baptist Church. We don't just go through motions. We don't just do things just because we've always done it and just fall into a routine. There's nothing routine about worship at this church as long as that brother's at the helm. Because he's got it. Pastor Chad understands worship is a dynamic process designed by a living God for a living entity called the body of Christ. And so everything that you see on that worship God reflects how God has been moving upon his spirit with the input of the other pastors Throughout the course of the week, so I'm excited when I come. You know, he sends us a copy via email uh, prior, but I'm excited just to see what's God up to this week. Oh, I'm preaching. Okay, Uh, no, (laughs) no, it's better than that. I know we have it planned a little better than that. But uh, but but back to the song, uh, Brittany and and Amy. Uh, That that just really powerful. You need to get that worship guide out t- this afternoon or tonight, folks, and just go back over that and read back through the words. Wow! What it means to come before God and to open up the living Word of God and, and experience the life giving power and liberation and deliverance. Oh, whew! Every preacher needs that song before they get up to preach. Praise God. I'm like my grandson, Asher. Uh, If he likes something, his famous word is, again, again. And you'll find yourself repeating it, Becca knows, over and over and over. So as far as that song goes, ladies, again. (laughs) This is a tripod. Y'all figure that out. I come from the old age. And uh, before the days of computers and PowerPoints, you know, we stood with one of these. This is our trusted friend in doing conferences and seminars and what have you. And because you had to have a tripod because it held your teaching material for visual displays. And it's got three legs, hence try The geometry majors figure that out. But anyway, uh, each, each of the legs on this tripod are vitally important. Because if I just put two up, you see, it just wouldn't and you'd have a very wobbly presentation. I think about that because um, I heard uh, Dr. Mark Quartz, who ran for the U.S. Senate, often referred to former President Ronald Reagan talking about a three-legged stool. Those of you that went to hear Mark heard him talk about President Reagan said, any strong nation must stand firmly on the three-legged stool of And the three legs were a strong foreign policy, a strong domestic policy, and then strong moral values. He said, any one of those legs become weak, the nation will totter and it will fall. And I I thought that was good. And, And I'd like to build on that, talking about this tripod here. Because those of you that that were here, you know, a few Sundays ago, we, we, we described to you that the pastoral team of Cornerstone Baptist Church wants us to be a healthy church. We really feel God leading us to lead you to be a healthy and a dynamic church. And that depends upon engaging the church in three very vital, vital activities. And I put them up here just to remind those of you that, like myself, your memory may slip. And those three activities, you've already participated in one. And I apologize those of you that are back over there. I'll just do it like that, pan the audience. (laughs) Kind of like Vanna. Okay? Discipleship. Learning from the Word of God how to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and how to imitate Him and be mature as a follower of Christ. Every church has to have strong discipleship. But then worship. That's what we're doing now. We're gathering together to come before the Lord, to worship the Lord in truth and in spirit around the Word of God. So a strong church has to have discipleship, engaging the members in worship, but then service. We talked about the importance of every church providing opportunities for its members after they are being discipled, engaging in worship to demonstrate to God their love for the Lord, their commitment to God through actively giving back to God. And so we develop Sunday Night Serve. It's an opportunity for you to come back on Sunday night if you're physically able to, to serve the Lord, we have a wide variety of opportunities. We have our team kid for those of you that like working with te- with kids. We're teaching them the Bible, we're engaging them in relationships and wor- and, and worship and singing and, and games and food and, and, and we're reaching kids into community. We're bringing children from up at the plantation apartment. so, so that's uh, and then we have opportunities for people to roll up the sleeves and, and to demonstrate that love for God through cleaning the church facilities and sprucing up things. These facilities are dedicated to God. Why wouldn't we want to take care of them? Why why wouldn't we want to show our love for God through and we'll provide other opportunities. You just come. We'll show you ways to serve. Not only in the church, but we'll also take you outside of the church to serve the Lord. Yesterday I had the privilege of accompanying Sister Wendy Godowitz and Sister Diane Vaughn to go down to the Baptist Children's Home. And my goodness, what a crowd. 500 Baptists from across the state, rolling up their sleeves, doing anything from trimming shrubs, cutting down limbs, hauling off trash, mopping floors, uh, fixing food. Oh, just like a beehive down there. And what a wonderful fellowship it was. But you know what? It was an excellent opportunity to just serve God, to show him how much we love him. Another way we want to provide you an opportunity to serve the Lord and show Him how much you love Him and how dedicated you are to Him is through evangelism. Evangelism. And and that's important because every one of us are called to be a disciple and to be a disciple maker. That's the Great Commission. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. You You can't make disciples if you're not engaging in reaching people. And so this morning I'm going to share with you a message that God has taken out of Acts chapter 8 and it's going to highlight what we identified if you were here in April at the evangelism seminar we came up with a, a very simple philosophy of evangelism that, that I believe each one of these are very crucial legs you take one away and evangelism falls apart as, as God's people you got to go <laughs> you, it, it, you can't evangelize sitting at home with the remote control in your hand or stuffing Twinkies in your mouth watching Oprah or whatever. God bless you if you do. You need to come to the altar. But anyway, um, not about the Twinkies, about Oprah. But anyway, the, you, go. And, and then know relationships. Knowing people. And I'll talk more about that. And then once you develop that relationship, show. Show them the truth. Show them the message of the gospel. So, go, know, and show. Let me hear you say that over again. One, go. Two, No. Three, show. Well, shucks, y'all got it. I guess we could go home. I thought I'd get an amen there. I was afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter eight because I want to walk you back into a part of God's word that I hey listen, there's nothing there's nothing ho-hum or boring about the church, folks. Not when not when the church is the church. Now, when the church becomes just another institution of man and falls into a routine of just trying to engage people in pleasure and comfort and tickling their ears and whatever, yeah, after a while, so much, you know, it's like I said about Twinkies. You know, the first one could be delicious. Second one, scrumptious. The third one, yeah, it's good. By the time you get to the 25th one, you know, you probably say, yuck. You know, if it has no real appetite, satisfying uh, of the appetite, you're not engaged in it. Well, as we look at chapter 8, you may recall last week we opened up chapter 8 with, with the dramatic stoning, horrible stoning of one of the young, bright, up-and-coming up, up stars of the church. A young man who was powerfully, dynamically empowered by the Spirit of God. His name was Stephen. And, 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 and because he so boldly preached the Word of God, irregardless of the threats that were being made against him, he died. He was killed. It was was like a mob dragged him outside of the city of Jerusalem. They stoned him. Stephen became the first martyr of their early church. But you know, that didn't end the story. Aren't you glad? In fact, God used Stephen's stoning. God used the emergence of persecution to do to the church what the church should have been doing all along. Because Jesus told him in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. He says, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you will receive power. And then you will be my witnesses in all of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And even to the remotest parts of the earth. The church should have been going. But just like Baptists today. We get settled in, hunkered down. Things are good, comfortable. Therefore, we just why do we need to go out there? We're having a good time here. But you see, God has a way of moving his church. He used even something as horrific as the stoning of one of his faithful servants, Stephen, to disperse the church because at the same time, Satan is working. Folks, Satan doesn't take vacations. You may take a vacation this summer, and I hope you do. I hope you get away and relax and get away from the grind of work and all the pressures, but you know Satan doesn't take vacations. He works 24-7 all year round to combat the work of God to undermine the church of God. So don't ever let your guard down. And back in chapter 8, just as one of God's great servants were, went down, actually, he went up because it's all he saw Jesus in his last words standing at the right hand of God the Father. He says, I'm going home. (laughs) Y'all can keep this old body. I'm checking out, going home. That's a paraphrase. But anyway, at the time that, that that Satan was engineering the downfall of one of God's great bright shining servants, Satan was also energizing his instrument, his diabolical instrument of persecution. A young man by the name of Saul of Tarsus. And Saul took this thing of persecution very seriously he was breathing and eating and living persecuting the church and so because of the persecution sparked by Stephen's martyrdom and because of Saul's threats many were dispersed from the church but let me uh, from from Jerusalem out to far reaching areas and one of those was a young man another one of the fabulous 7 You remember in Acts chapter 6 when the apostles told the church to elect for themselves men who had good reputations, full of the Holy Spirit, wisdom, and they would serve the church. And these were this fabulous seven. I'm just calling them that because, man, they had to be pretty good. There's Stephen and then here's Philip. We saw last week how Philip was dispersed along with so many from Jerusalem and he went up into a region that most Jews would certainly avoid. But these are not just Jews. These are Christians now. And then he goes up into the area of Samaria, and there he's preaching the bold word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And multitudes of people are being won into the kingdom of God. It's exciting. There is a literal spiritual awakening breaking forth in Samaria like nobody has ever seen. Peter and John had to go up to verify and authenticate it. Well, you would think that at that time that God would let Philip just kind of settle down. Build him a big house there on the, front, on the lakefront, you know, and have himself a, a ministry and get some secretaries, administrative assistants and all, and sit back and just run this evangelism ministry that's just going like like wildfire in Samaria. And settle down. I mean, it's a good thing, right? When it's a good thing, you don't mess with it, right? God doesn't do things the way we do. He had other plans for Philip. As we'll see as we pick up here in Chapter 8, verse 26, because you see, God is still giving marching orders to this young man. And what we see, first of all, as we look at chapter 8, verse 26 through 28, is the Lord's renewed call to go, because this is what God's plan involved. Look with me there in chapter 8, verse 26, as we continue the story. Now, an angel of the Lord, this is just a spokesman, a, spokesman, a messenger of God, spoke to Philip. You may may remember in Matthew chapter 1, when Joseph was contemplating divorce in Mary, an angel spoke to him. God sent an angel to him in a dream and said, give him this message. Don't divorce him. This child is the Son of God, Savior of the world. And Joseph woke up, said, Mary, I'm not going to divorce you. Well, anyway, angels speak to people in their dreams. I'm not telling you that every time you dream, and it's weird that an angel said that, okay? It could be that enchilada that you had the night before, or a nightmare, or something like that. But anyway, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch, of great authority under Candace, the queen of Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasuries. In other words, he's the minister of finance. And had come to Jerusalem to worship. He was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Let's stop there for a second. Because I want to remind you, God's got a plan, folks. God has an eternal mission. It started all the way back in Genesis. God wanted to reach out to the world, particularly to humanity, and to love man. And in turn, he wanted man to love him. And he wanted to be in fellowship with man. Things fell apart, as you well know, in the book of Genesis, and the fall of man, and then Noah, and on and on. The world was very wicked. God saw that. He called Noah, built an ark, and from there, you know, and again, later, God chose a man by the name of Abraham, a man of great faith. In fact, it was his obedience that counted him righteous in the eyes of God. But I want you to understand something. God told Abraham, i got a plan. I've got a mission. And guess what, Abraham? Childless at 80 years old. <laughs> you're going to have a multitude of children. A multitude. I can just see Abraham. Multitude, what do you mean, God? He said, look up in the sky. See the stars? Yeah, include the your Way. How many you see? I can't count them. Great. That's how many descendants you'll have. God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, He says, I'm going to make a great nation of you. I'm going to make you great. I'll make your name great. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And through you, this is important, through you, all the families of the earth. Did He say just the Jews? No. Did He say just the Pony Indians? <laughs> no. All the, all the families. God says, I've got a plan. A plan that involves every nation, every.'" People group. And so there was the original laying out of the plan. And of course, you know, Israel was in God's plan and certainly was to be the, his instrument to reach out to the nation as descendants of Abraham. They didn't do too well. They faltered in their part. And so God is beginning to look forward beyond even Israel in Isaiah chapter 42. In verse 6, God says, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the peoples, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from from the prison house. God initially was saying this to Israel. This is what Israel was supposed to do, bring the light of the gospel or the light of the word of God to bring truth and to bring people to God to free them from spiritual bondage and deliver them to be what God intended people to be in the very beginning. Because they faltered, so now this is a prophetic message speaking of the Messiah, Christ. But, but, but don't forget, every, every track of the way, God is saying, this is my plan for the nations. Folks, don't, don't lose sight of the global aspect of church. What we do right here at 4507 Thomasville Road is vitally important, no doubt about it. But don't forget, we are just one small part of a great big army called the army of God, the people of God, the body of Christ, the church, and it's touching the nations of the world. That's why Jesus said, you know, you will go and be my witnesses in both Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And so far, that's where they are. Because Philip's got them to Samaria. He's witnessing to Samaritans. They're coming to Christ. But Jesus says, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Which means everywhere on the face of the earth. That's significant because in ancient Greek and Roman culture and times... Ethiopia, a a very civilized kingdom around the turn of the BC, AD times, uh, just to the south of Egypt. Its its residents were black, but they were civilized. They they held the, the respect of the Romans even though they didn't mingle with them because they considered Ethiopia to be the remotest part of the earth. In other words, if you were going down to Egypt and you took a wrong turn, your GPS got you off, and you found yourself in Ethiopia, you look around, and everybody's black, you know, and you, they, they have a... You say, I'm in Ethiopia. Yikes, I've gone to the remotest part of the earth. It'd be like showing up in the town, city, uh, town limits of Roxborough. If you get there, folks, you really need to call me because you can't get anywhere from there. Okay, so, but, but the idea, God is moving. The, can I just... Uh, I was excited. I, I, I saw... The, Let me show you. You say, Well, that sounds great, but with technology and and the emergence of evil and immorality, so much going against the church, the the plan's not gonna work. We're you know, we're being Satan is beating us down, there's so much against the church today. Surely this can't work. Oh, yes, it does. Can can I just show you in the book of Revelation, the vision that God gave to John in that great revelation, can I show you where you are? You're there! It's like back to the future. I mean, we are right here in Revelation 7, where John is recounting what he sees around the celestial throne of God. In verse 9, After these things I look, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all, listen now, listen, of all nations, tribes, peoples, tongues, Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and cried out with a loud voice that's you and me, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Folks, there it is. The plan is absolutely fulfilled. God does not set out to do something and then falter on it. or stop short. It, Paul said in Philippians 1.6, he's like, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, he will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. So when God initiated this wondrous mission of reaching all the people of the earth, there would be his people one day. Someone from every tribe, and that's where... John described, well, let me take you back because uh, Philip, I want you to see. He, we see some things about Philip as we talk about being witnesses for the Lord and engaging in meaningful evangelism. We can learn a lot from old Philip here because, number one, we see as we study this man as he's presented, he had absolute dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Do you? What do you depend mostly on? Your bank account? Your opinion of your friends? The security of your home, your stocks, your bonds, your career. What, what, what do you really lean on? When it's all said and done, what's the last leg you stand on and depend? Is it the Spirit of God? Philip did. Remember, he's one of the fabulous seven. Great reputation, great wisdom. And and how much of the Holy Spirit? F-U-L-L. Philip! 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 Peter. Paul said in Ephesians 5.18, he said, don't be drunk with wine whereas then a- is excess and debauchery, but be what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't just take a sip and say, well, that's enough. <laughs> he says, guzzle it down, bring him in, fill yourself up with the Spirit of God. And it's, Spirit-filled people like Philip that are instrumental in advancing the mission of God. And we see that. He depended upon the Holy Spirit. How do we know that? Because God said through the angel, Arise and go toward the south along the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This was a a trade route along the Mediterranean Sea. If you track your map, it's about 40 miles southwest of where uh, Philip is right now. He said, "Now get this right. I want you to leave this lucrative evangelism where everybody's following you, and you've got a great following, and you're having great fruit, and, and everybody is you're popular up here, and you're having great uh, response. I want you to leave this, folks. I want you to go down in the desert, go down there on a lonely stretch of highway in no man's land. Y'all probably got the vision in your eyes, in your mind. See a big old tall cactus there, with his arm up like that, and." You see old lone turkey buzzard sitting on top of that and a cow skull at the bottom. Yeah, like those old Westerns. I mean, this is not a thriving, you know, oasis. That's where, that's where God says, I want you to go. Now, contrast Philip with another popular or infamous biblical character that God sent on a mission, Jonah. God said, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. What was Jonah's response? He went, didn't he? He sure did, but he went in the opposite direction. Like a lot of Christians today, when God says go and do. But not, not Philip. Philip got up and he went. He wasn't like old Charlie Martin. Lord, let me, let me, I need to pray about that. <laughs> go to the desert and work? And yet that's what he did. How could he do that? How could he ignore what would be maybe the reasoning of his friends and the counsel of his buddies and say, Philip, you're going to go down to the desert? you going to leave all of this, brother? Because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? It means the Holy Spirit's in control. And when the Holy Spirit is in control of you, and when the Holy Spirit is in control of me, like the Holy Spirit was in control of Philip, listen, we will follow his lead. And that's exactly what needed to happen because this was God's way of preparing Philip for a very unusual encounter because there at an intersection along that lonely stretch of desert road, Philip gets there at exactly the time. Here he been a half a day later? Are earlier. He could have missed this Ethiopian eunuch. He'll be at the right time, right place at the right time. And when the Spirit is leading you and me, ladies and gentlemen, you will be. But when you try to take control of God's work. According to your preference and your desires, guess what? You may miss an opportunity. You may miss the boat altogether. That's why it's important. Be filled with the Spirit of God as Philip was. And so there is the Ethiopian eunuch. That's an interesting character because so many times we get focused on the eunuch thing and we forget about whatever role he is. He is a, a, an Ethiopian eunuch from the empire of the Ethiopians. He is the finance minister. It wasn't unusual in that ancient culture for, for the kings to make uh, their trusted government officials uh, eunuchs. I guess so they wouldn't be tempted with sex or <laughs> like our politicians in Washington and Raleigh. But anyway, <clears throat> that's another sermon for another time. But anyway, so, so there he is. He's a trustworthy man. Uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, they were very trustworthy servants of Nebuchadnezzar, The eunuchs. But yes, I get stuck on that, okay? But the fact is, here he is, he's traveling along. And he's a, he's a, a finance minister for Candace, the queen. And, and in that empire, the Ethiopians, they were a mystical kind of an empire because the Romans and the, the Greeks, you know, they were fascinated by them to some degree because the Ethiopian kings really didn't rule. The, the kings in Ethiopia were regarded to be sun gods, So so they were worshipped. And the queen ran the government. And by the way, her name's not really Candace. It's not like they had, Hey, Queen Candy. (laughs) No, no. That's the title. Just like Pharaoh. Just like Caesar. All the queens were Candace and then Candace something else. Candace Jezebel. Candace, nah. But whatever. But that was a a, position. So this very strong queen sent her primary minister of finance to Jerusalem. And so he's there. Now, God is not only preparing the place, but God is also preparing the, the heart of this Ethiopian unit. Because you see, he's, he's seeking. How do we know that? Because we see that he went all the way to Jerusalem. Why do you go to Jerusalem if you're a pagan from Ethiopia? Because you are a God seeker. You're seeking after God. And so what we see is this, this God-seeking Ethiopian. And, and so God is demonstrating His absolute providence by putting Philip at the exact place, but also preparing the heart of this Ethiopian because what is he doing in verse 28? As he's returning along the route, he's reading the book of Isaiah. He's reading. He's, listen, you've got to understand, in, in ancient Judaism... With all of their multiplicity of rules and regulations and and, and and exclusions, if you were a eunuch, you were considered to be blemished, and therefore you could not, even though you were a God seeker, this this man could not become a full fledged proselyte to Judaism. He, he, which meant he was restricted in access to certain parts of the temple. As as a eunuch, he would be restricted in uh, access to. Uh, Jewish worship. Uh, and so he would not be considered fully a Jew. Even if he came saying, I want to be a Jew. They would say, no, you just got to stand on the outside. You are a mm, God-fearer. Remember Cornelius? Well, you'll see, we'll introduce him later, chapter 10. But, but a God-fearer. But, but you're not really... Can you imagine the frustration? the The emptiness of leaving Jerusalem, having traveled that great distance... For the purpose of becoming one of the Jews and, and, and to be labeled like that? He was, he was traveling with a sense of frustration, probably emptiness, and, and where else could he turn? Judaism probably rejected him, so he turns to the Word. So God's preparing him. He's got him reading in Isaiah, and in the book of Isaiah we find that you know, Isaiah is talking about how important it is for people to seek Him with all their heart. And that's what this Ethiopian eunuch is doing. He's seeking God through the Word of God. So, Philip goes. He's accomplished the first part of evangelism. He goes where God says to go. He's exactly where he needs to be. He's encountering exactly the person that God wants him to encounter. So now we look and we see God's divine prompting for Philip to not only be there, to go, but now to know. And we see that demonstrated in verse 29. Then the Spirit, and I think it's important. God is, you know, at first it was an angel, but now... He's where he needs to be. The Spirit of God is speaking directly to him. And, and Philip sees his entourage. I mean, the Ethiopian eunuch is not just traveling along with one hand on the reins, reading Isaiah, and, and trying to you know, make his way back home. No, man, if you're the minister of finance of a powerful empire, you've got a whole entourage. You've got soldiers. You've got attendants. And you know, flags and everything. And so this entourage is coming down the road, and, and Philip sees them. And he's like, whoa. What's up? But then God's Spirit prompts him in verse 29 and says, go, second go in the text, go near and overtake this chariot. In other words, Philip, I want you to intersect this man's life. I want there to be a relationship. And guess what? You can't develop a relationship standing on the side of the road and watching people go by. You can't develop a relationship standing on your side of the hallway and over there at another locker on the other side of the hallway or down the hall, there's a student that God wants you to intersect and and share the gospel. Or if you're at work and your cubicle's here and that person that God puts on your heart is in another office down the hallway, you can talk and pray all you want to, but sooner or later, God's going to say, Go! Go to them! Go across the street to your neighbor, the very one that I put on your heart. Go! You've got to get up and go. And and, and and that's what Philip was doing. And he says, and not only that, I want you to know them. Find out something about them. Philip would not have known what he ends up knowing about this Ethiopian eunuch had he simply stayed in position, but he went with a seeking heart because God was basically saying, I want you to get to know this man. And in doing so, the Lord is prompting Philip to intersect this man's life. He gives Philip boldness to engage the man with the truth. And, and we'll see that develop as we look at verse 29. Then the Spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. That doesn't mean go conquer it. Knock the wheels off of it and take it for you. Just go get close by to the chariot. That'd be a little bit di- difficult today if somebody whizzed by you on a Corvette. God says, okay, catch up with them. But the chariot moves along pretty slow. And so Philip takes off running. And, and, and so Philip ran to him and heard him reading the, the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you're reading? You see, you, you can't develop a relationship unless you're willing to find out things about people and, and ask questions. And so Philip hears him reading Philip being... Scholarly in the Word of God recognizes, hey, that's Isaiah. All right, all right. I, I know those words. I've heard those words. So he asked him, you know, do you know what? You, do you understand what you're reading? And looked at the response of the Ethiopian eunuch. Talk about being prepared by God. How can I, unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the Scripture which he read was this. He was like a he, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter. And like a lamb, silent before its shearers, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch then, here's another question. Philip asked a question. eunuch asked a question. He says, who, who is Isaiah talking about here? Is he talking about himself? Or who is he talking about? He's talking about some other man? What God is doing is He's setting the stage for Philip to begin to develop a relationship in knowing this man. And Philip is engaging in developing this relationship. If God, if God puts someone in your life, and He will, then you've got to be ready. You've got to to be sensitized to the working of God's Spirit so that when He puts somebody on your mind and impresses somebody upon them, then you've got to be familiar with the Word of God because what does it say? It says that Philip opened his mouth in verse 35. He opened his mouth beginning at this Scripture. Philip knew the Word of God. It's important that you as a Christian, you don't need to be a Bible scholar. You don't need to be able to quote from Genesis to Revelation. But no, be familiar with the Word of God. That's why Peter said in 1 Peter 3.15, he says, Sanctify the Lord God in your heart and always be ready to give a defense to those who ask for a reason for the hope that is in you. And if you're living the Christian life and you're standing firm on the Word of God and you dare to be different from this pagan world in which we live and you've not lived a compromised life before others, people will see the difference. Sooner or later, people are going to see that you don't go around with a gloom of hopelessness. You have hope. You don't go around critical and and, and negative, but you go around positive and encouraging. People will notice that instead of being cold and indifferent, you have love and compassion in your heart. Sooner or later, somebody's going to ask the question. They're going to say, what makes you different? And Peter says, you be ready. You sanctify God in your heart so that you are ready. Now think about what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. He says, be diligent to present yourself ready and, and approved unto God. A workman who need not be ashamed. Rightly divided in the Word of God. Know the Word of God. So that when God gives you an opportunity to, to begin to develop a relationship with someone, you are ready. Not only did God prepare Philip. And you don't see anything in the text where Philip got the stutter and said, uh, uh, Well, I've heard some people say this. I've heard, some, uh, I've heard another opinion there. Uh, no. He said, Hey, dude. I mean, bro, what did you call an Ethiopian right in you know, Sir, I'll tell you what he's talking about. This suffering servant in Isaiah 53, he's Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God. He is the very Lamb of God who suffered for our sins and gave his life on a cross there in Jerusalem to pay the price for the redemption of your sin. And he preached Jesus to him. And God prepared the Ethiopian's heart. He awakens that spiritual desire within his soul. He's brought him all the way to Jerusalem. He's taken him to the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 and 7, it tells Isaiah talks about how important it is to seek the Lord. And let me tell you something. God is in the business of preparing hearts of people that he will bring into your pathway. When we engage in evangelism through relationships, let me tell you something. Here's the good news. It doesn't ultimately depend on you or me. It depends upon the Spirit of God. There's not a person on the face of earth and in heaven who is saved apart from the work of Almighty God. Jesus made it clear in John 6, 44. He says, Those who receive me, the Father has drawn them to me. So when God puts someone in your pathway that He wants you to be engaged in a relationship to go to them, to know something about them, let me tell you something. God is going to do His part and we must do our part. We must be willing to go. We must be willing to take the time to ask the questions of those that we are, God is prompting us to develop a relationship. We need to get to know something about them. You don't have to go right up to them and say, Hey, do you, do you know you're going to die and go to hell? Where are you going to go if you die tonight? Heaven or hell? No, you don't have to be abrupt and and, 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 and blunt like that. A relationship is built gradually. Your first encounter may be just talking and saying, hey, you know, where, where do you go to school? Where, where do you work? Where, you know, what are your hobbies? What do you like to do? You like Andy Griffith? Hold your breath. ask the impertinent questions, you ask questions about their interest and their dislikes and things and you begin to develop, you know people can sense if you really care if you're just going through the rote process of uh, uh, you just you know, boom boom, 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 going down a presentation check one, check two, check three, people can sense that that's why I say get to know them and let them know that in Christ you really do care about them Because when that relationship is being built, just like Philip was right there, taking his time, cultivating a relationship, didn't have a whole lot of time because God had other plans for him. But but let me tell you something. It depended upon the work of the Holy Spirit in him. And boy, did the Holy Spirit work. Because the light bulbs were going on inside of that Ethiopian's mind, the more uh, Philip preached Christ and the gospel light bulbs are going on he said oh yeah i see i see it yes 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 all the way to the point that when they finally got to the last watering hole remember they're going through the desert and there weren't many and there's the providence of god again not only did he put philip at the right place at the right time but on the way with the ethiopian he says okay this fellow he's he's received me by faith got to get him baptized need some water there's and the ethiopian said hey there's some water What's to keep me from being baptized? You notice he took the initiative. Why? Because he's had a transformation in his life. He has heard the gospel. He's understood the gospel. Why? Because Philip was such a sassy and and polished uh, presenter? No, because Philip was a willing servant of the Lord, willing to go, willing to know, and letting God use him to show the truth of the gospel. Folks, let me remind you, when it comes to evangelism, We're not salesmen. Okay? We're not out there trying to push a product. Listen, the success of our evangelism is not dependent upon what we do so much. It's not about pushing a product. It's not about twisting arms or any high pressure. It's about simply letting God work through you. To draw someone to himself. And that's exactly what God was doing through Philip right there in that encounter. Verse 36, as we look now, the Lord's Spirit leads Philip. To show. Look at verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth, beginning at the scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Now, in some of your translations, you don't even have verse 37. Uh, I think the NIV just skips it. But, But the reason is, in most of the older, reliable manuscripts, it's not there. But it is worth inserting to, to, because if, even if this is a doctrinal statement of the church inserted later, this is probably what took place. Philip said something like, If you believe, in other words, here's water, why can't it be baptized? Philip more than likely says, First of all, you've got to know that you truly believe with all your heart. Then you mean. And, he, and, he, and the Ethiopian eunuch replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Why do we ask someone coming up to the baptismal pool to make a statement? Because it's their relationship with Christ that is opening up the pool for them to be baptized. It's, it's their public profession of faith in Jesus Christ as a Lord and Savior that enables them to participate in the ordinance of baptism. That's why we ask, you don't have to get up and pre- preach a message. In fact, I prefer you not, because that water gets cold after a while. No, it didn't, Mark. It actually very comfortable. But I get, you know, disbanded hands and withered legs and all that. But, but the fact is, people make a profession of faith, then they're baptized. This probably happened, though. It may have not been accurate at, at that time. In other words, it wasn't, didn't transpire as it was written in the scriptures at that point. So, now we're back to verse 38. This is in everybody's Bible. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. And you'll notice that it says they went down into the water and, they, and, and, and he baptized him. The, the word used there is immersion. That's the biblical form of baptism. If you were sprinkled as a baby, God bless you. You just got an extra bath, okay? Uh, but, but listen... We understand Jesus was baptized by immersion, John the Baptist baptized by immersion. You you know when Peter I mean when Philip and and the Ethiopian eunuch went down into the water, they went down into the water. And when it says they came up out of the water, he raised them up out of the water because of the beautiful symbolism of what transpires in the pool talks about what transpires in our lives spiritually. You are you are washed. Totally, from head to toe, all of your sins are cleansed. Amen? Yes! You're lowered into the pool as one who died to their sins, but you're raised up out of the water as one who has been resurrected in Christ with new life. Amen? Sprinkling just doesn't get that. Now, don't go out there and anger your Methodist friends. It's not worth a a battle, okay? And so now, you see Philip is being faithful in showing this Ethiopian eunuch the way to Jesus Christ and, and having a meaningful relationship. We don't know what happened to the Ethiopian eunuch when he got back home. Some of early church fathers say, well, he became evangelist. And all of Ethiopia was evangelized. Well, yeah, it's nice to think, but there's no real evidence To support that, the earliest evidence we have of the presence of Christianity in Ethiopia was not until about the 3rd or 4th century A.D. So that was later. But who knows, he planted the seeds. Who knows, he may have started a house church back there in Ethiopia that eventually grew and multiplied and became fruitful and spread the gospel throughout that empire. We don't know, but the fact is, the Bible says right there in verse 39 that... When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. In other words, these two men probably never saw each other again. But boy, you're talking about rejoicing in heaven. And they finally get to heaven. That Ethiopian is probably hugging old Philip and thank you, Philip, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for being there. Thank you, brother, for going. Thank you, brother, for knowing me. Thank you, brother, for showing me the way. Listen, I love that Ray Bolt song. Thank you for giving to the Lord. You may think that what you do in the life of the church is insignificant, but I promise you there's no such thing as this insignificant work for God. And you don't know the people that if you're faithful in following the lead of the Holy Spirit and you dare to go and you dare to get to know them and you dare to show them. Listen, you don't know. Maybe they didn't accept Christ that moment that you shared. Maybe the relationship fell apart or they moved or whatever. And you're thinking, well, that was to no avail. i got a feeling if you're faithful to do your part, God will do his part. And you may find that there are people in heaven even right now waiting for you to hug your neck and, and, and say to you, thank you. Thank you. I'm here because God used you. You cared enough. It resulted in the Ethiopians' genuine conversion. And let me tell you something. When we share the gospel, it's not just some simple little pat on the shoulder kind of a decision. Bless your heart, raise your hand sign this card you know promise me you'll go to church somewhere folks let me tell you what Christianity is it's the same call when Jesus walked up to John Peter James Andrew and he says come follow me And when we are sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are as much as sharing Christ. And with that, you make sure they understand that a commitment to Jesus Christ is a commitment to repent, I mean, turn away from, walk away from their sins. To leave that sinful life. And I pray God... That we are rid of questionable conversions in this church. I pray God that every person that comes to be presented before this church will will know that they have made that commitment. There is evidence that they have followed Christ. And they know full well that Jesus is saying to them, if you're going to follow me, then you're going to deny yourself. You're going to take up your cross daily and you're going to follow me Listen, being a Christian means a radical life change. It's severing the ties with sin and sinful friends, sinful relationship, sinful habits, and focusing your attention fully on God. Listen, as your pastor, I pray God that I will not be a part of cheap evangelism or superficial professions of faith anymore for as long as God uses me in ministry. May I present to you any time that God brings somebody to Christ, someone who has made a genuine commitment to follow Jesus Christ. Nothing less. Less. nothing less and that's what it means to be engaged in meaningful genuine evangelism I read in the biblical recorder which is the North Carolina Baptist newsletter <clears throat> paper that our Southern Baptist Convention is concerned of a pattern of decline in baptisms in our Southern Baptist Convention over the past number of years. We've always been a baptizing force. We've always been a mighty evangelistic force that boasted in great numbers. Folks, many of those numbers went to hell. If I had had my way of communicating to the leaders of our convention, and hopefully when Pastor Chad and Sister Wendy and I go to the convention next week, or week after next, maybe I'll get the opportunity. What I would love to say to our convention leaders is, yeah, I can understand where that might distract you, but let me tell you something. We don't need to be so concerned about numbers of baptisms as much as we are concerned about the numbers of people who are being truly converted. if it meant cutting the numbers down by the hundreds of thousands let's get back to the core of people who truly are following Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and are not superficial name only Christians who think they're going to heaven but are actually bound for hell and the true church of this century and, and until Jesus comes will be the church that promotes genuine biblical Evangelism, and is satisfied with nothing less than genuine commitments to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Think about it. Matthew twenty-eight, I'm closing. Verse nineteen, Jesus says, "Go therefore and make converts." Uh huh. No. He says, go therefore and make disciples. If that's what the Lord said to do, brothers and sisters, that's what we must do.